Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. We still live in many ways as people with disabilities in a a charity, if not a, a medical model, and what I mean by that, that the medical model is where people with disabilities are viewed as having a problem or a deficit that could be or should be fixed somehow by a medical process. Those are the wise words of Dan Stubbs. Dan is Victoria's first disability worker commissioner. A short bit of housekeeping and we'll get right back to Dan. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Levi to our Patreon family. As you know, I wouldn't be in a position to make this podcast each week without the support of our Patreon family, including Levi, Rich, Tanvir, Lucia, Judy, Jules, Sally, McCartan, Stuart, Joel, Misha Times 2, Bonnie, Olivia, Lyndon, Joe, B, and Will. This elite squad helps me shape the direction of the podcast through their advice, ideas, guest referrals, and ongoing feedback. If you want to support the growth of Humans of Purpose, I encourage you to join our Patreon community. By supporting me to make Humans of Purpose, you are supporting independent and local content production in the form of conversations about the things that matter most. To support us, just hit the link in our show notes or head to patreon.com slash humans of purpose. So, as I mentioned, it's an honor to have Dan Stubbs here, Victoria's inaugural Disability Worker Commissioner. Thank you to the awesome Marley White for suggesting this conversation and for connecting us. Dan and the recently appointed Disability Worker Registration Board of Victoria will provide independent oversight and safeguards to ensure Victorians can confidently seek advice and make complaints about disability workers. Dan and his commission play a key role in ensuring we have a high-quality and trusted disability care workforce. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dan as much as I did. Dan, terrific to have you with me. Thanks so much for dropping in. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Well, it's a pleasure, and I'm really glad that you took me up on the offer of uh, single malt uh, Starwood whiskey too. That that was a, a kind blessing of you. Is that an indicator for any any guest on the show? Where you know what they agree to drink, whether they yeah, drink a cup look, of tea or it's whiskey? an indicator that I made the right choice in inviting you on, and you're, you're a person of class. You know that you had the choice of tea, but you went whiskey, which is terrific. Um, so great to have you here. Your referral in from from Marley White, uh, who's terrific too. Yeah, Marley's been a bit of a gun working for uh, the organisation I'm currently with, and she's she's one of these sort of amazing people who sort of go into an organisation, help set it up, and make it all work. And now she's moved on to the next thing. So, so big shout out to Marley. Yeah. Uh, we had agreed before this pod to just definitely shout out Marley and thank her for that connection. Legend. And I was thrilled to hear about your work. And I don't want to preempt too much because I'm excited for you to take us into it in true humans of purpose style. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, can you please sort of share a bit about your story, uh, your journey, and how you came to be where we are today? Sure. It's hard to really imagine where it all began. I'm going to talk about high school just for a minute. Uh, I'm actually blind and I could see perfectly till I was about 15 years old. And so at that point, you know, 15, you're halfway through high school and I had a, a, a condition which uh, is quite rare and it mainly affects um, males in their adolescence, and my eyesight deteriorated over, deteriorated over a course of about six weeks. And 
that was a time when I was I was at what was called then a, a tech school because my parents thought, you know, get him into a tech school, he can do a trade and get a good job and everything. But then suddenly I, I could no longer continue to do sort of, you know, woodwork and sheet metal and plumbing and all the rest of it. And so I went through and did the more academic stream and ended up being possibly the only person to ever go from that tech school, McLeod Tech, um, shout out to anyone that went to McLeod Tech, <laughs> uh, through to Melbourne University. And so... You were the first? Uh, possibly the only one ever. And oh, wow. Because they only ran their, their um, VCE year for um, uh, about 10 years. Oh, that's that's a record. <laughs> so um, anyway, I, I, I went to went to uni and that was... That was a really interesting time. I met some amazing people and I was, through some of the people I I met, I was uh, influenced in all all sorts of important ways. But ultimately, I was was worried about getting a job. You know, it it was a, a time when, you know, jobs were scarce and I chose a degree where I thought, okay, that'll get me a job. I actually studied economics. So I'm now coming out to you as uh, having been a, an economist or a recovering economist. Oh, I, I think that would have been my second career. I'm obsessed with economics. Right. Well, Not good uh, at it, but interested. Um, we, we can bore thousands and thousands of people to <laughs> tears for hours, if you like. Let's not. <laughs> and so anyway, I, I, I finished that degree. I was unemployed for a year. I eventually uh, got a job in Canberra as a uh, – uh, a public servant economist, as a, a research economist, and I later became uh, involved in in more policy economics, which was much more interesting. And all the while, I was getting more involved in the the community sector, if you like, particularly the disability sector, and that uh, became my passion. I started to realise and understand more and more the inequality faced by so many people, particularly. Uh, people that I increasingly had contact with, people with disabilities. Then from there, I, I got involved in uh, a community organisation. People might have heard of an organisation called ACOS, and in every state there's a state COS. I got a job heading up the ACT COS, ACT COS, and I was involved in advocating on a whole range of social justice issues, and that Included amongst other things, I was involved in uh, developing or advocating for, and then developing the first Australia's first Bill of Rights. And it was really from there when I was involved in that um, human rights-based work, where people, I think, thought I was a lawyer, and I started to also deal with a lot of community lawyers, and I, it, it made me realise that this is kind of where the rubber hits the road on mm. um, people's. Uh, rights, you know, we, we talk about rights in, in all these kind of broad and, and laudable ways, but in fact, when the average or disadvantaged person ends up in court, their life can go terribly, terribly badly if their rights aren't being upheld and they're not well represented. And it was from there that I decided to go and uh, do a law degree and practice law. So I did that. And at the same time, I also went and worked overseas uh, working in developing countries, particularly focused on disability issues. That was probably also kind of life-changing in its own way because I saw 
I guess the best and hardest of humanity in the way people with disabilities stood up for themselves, but also how people with disabilities were treated in some of the worst ways. Meanwhile, I'm finishing my law degree. I then came back to Australia to work in a uh, community legal centre in Sydney. Uh, the uh, That legal centre was based in King's Cross. And I always said, you know, work in a community legal centre in King's Cross, never a dull moment. <laughs> and that was the absolute truth. And from there I uh, I, I, I learnt an, an awesome amount of things and I, I got to do a whole range of different work. Uh, we had a specialist practice uh, focusing on uh, LGBTI legal issues and so did a whole lot of work there um, and, and the work ranged from um, family violence issues uh, for LGBTI people through to um, legal issues for transgender young people and, you know, trans uh, transgender young people needing to transition and uh, discrimination, um, homophobia, etc., as well as a whole range of other issues for people who are homeless in that area, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then I got a job back in Melbourne as... Uh, the CEO of a community legal centre in Melbourne, in a Melbourne community legal, which is based in North Melbourne. And I got to sort of continue my, my passion work, um, particularly around homelessness. So that There's a big homelessness um, issue around Melbourne that is um, hidden to many, many people. And, of course, within that, there's a whole range of disability issues. Probably most people we came in contact with who are homeless also had maybe cognitive impairment or acquired brain injury and and probably other disabilities such as mental illness. There were all sorts of issues that we worked in around with the with the hospitals around North Melbourne and Parkville, particularly focusing on family violence. So that that also allowed me to do what I think I'm very lucky to do, which is really work in areas that I'm passionate about and do things that I, I really, really care about. And then from there, I was uh, approached to um, put my name forward to be the commissioner, the, the Disability Worker Commissioner of Victoria, the, the first, the inaugural, I think I'm called, the inaugural uh, Disability Worker Commissioner of Victoria, which brought together, I think, all the work that I was doing outside of my day job. I, I was involved for over 20 years with various community organisations that do advocacy for and with people with disabilities. And my law, my my management, my, my law reform background, and so to come into this job, as, and as well as managing organisations and building organisations. So I'm, I've now come into this job uh, heading up this new commission where I'm actually building it from scratch. It's an incredible journey, and um, I, I'm not going to do it justice with just one question, so there may be several volleys and exchanges here. But social justice and working on really hard, um, working with people who are facing a lot of challenging problems seems to be something that lights your fire. It, it, can you sort of talk a bit about what it is about those challenges that really kind of 
um, gets you going and, and makes you want to be in that space. Because I, I don't think you could have done such an incredible journey and experience unless it was something that really resonated kind of on a soul level. Mm, I think in many ways I feel lucky. I, I, one, I get to do what I'm passionate about, but also I've had the privilege of so many opportunities. Um, I, I've been, uh, been able to you know, access all the education I want. I've been fortunate to have a very supportive family, uh, f- networks of friends, and, and maybe some natural skills. But I think when, when you are fortunate like I've been, you have an obligation to, well, basically leverage the hell out of your good fortune to ensure that you can create benefit for others. And that, that, that can come in many, many different ways. That can be about advocating for the rights of others or supporting others to advocate for themselves or just including people in, in your in, in your process or, or, or in what you're doing so that they can benefit from new experience and get a chance to get on and, and hopefully do better than I've done. So that, that's, I guess that's the, the broad scheme of, of how I think about my, my disability but also my, my incredible good luck and good fortune. In terms of your background and your learning, the disciplines of law and economics, um, I actually think they're a lot more similar than people give them credit for, both both sort of systems that try and explain the world, both systems that deal with incentives and human behaviour. Did you kind of change the way you thought about problems or how to solve problems when you um, went from economics to law? I, th- I think you do. When you when you immerse yourself in any discipline, you, you kind of see the world differently. Um and I always say that I, I took a very small step up the social scale from going to being an economist to being a lawyer. <laughs> uh, they say that, you know, a lawyer can go to court and ruin one person's life in one day. An economist can ruin a whole economy <laughs> in the matter of just a single quarter. So there, there you are. There's the difference. <laughs> the, the way of seeing the world through economics for me was in many ways about distribution of resources, so the social justice side of things and the the random way uh, resources and, and wealth are distributed is mostly pretty offensive. And the way um, governments and, and, and various sort of powers determine how to uh, spend money and distribute resources is not necessarily uh, the most economic and most economically beneficial way for the community. Uh, a lot of economists would be open in saying that, you know, uh, providing tax breaks to, to large business versus, um, say, uh, higher disability support pension and, and higher um, unemployment entitlements, you know, the, there's no argument that, the way we distribute things like that is um, is offensive and, and undermines the efficiency of the economy. But unfortunately, you know, there, there's many arguments to – well, there obviously is arguments because there's, there's many ways to look at it and 
um, economics often gets caught up in politics. The, 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 there's a very, you know, a lot of grey areas between the two. And similarly, law. Like most most lawyers practice commercial law. Uh, that's that's where most of the money gets spent on on law. But most of the cases are going on for ordinary people in the local court, in the magistrate's court. And you go into the magistrate's court any day of the week and unfortunately you'll see a sea of marginalised people who've somehow got caught up with the law. And it's absolutely maddening. Mm. You you rarely see um, someone who's wealthy or privileged that they find a way to keep away from these things. And so the the gaze of the system, and I, I include the police, but also other parts of the system, tends to be really easily trained on people who are vulnerable, people who are disadvantaged, and um, people who, you know, if, if they're wealthy, wouldn't wouldn't even attract a second glance and would uh, – would actually be able to direct the police elsewhere kind of thing. <laughs> I think that's why there's um, such a glee and bloodlust when you see things like Harvey Weinstein and, um, you know, some of the, the big trials in America uh, starting to sort of scratch that 1%. Uh, yeah, think, people get very right. excited. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, it's it's really just a, um, a tip of the iceberg. Yep. And, I yeah, the, the, we've got a long way to go to make – uh, the justice system truly just. It's it's a legal system. It's not the, it's not a justice system, if you like. Definitely going to um, use that as a quote. That's terrific. Um, so maybe let's talk a bit about the origin of the of the commission and sort of why that was decided to be set up, and just get your sort of formative thoughts because you are in the process of setting up that office. Mm. Yep. So in 2016 and um, into 2017, there was a Victorian parliamentary inquiry about disability services in Victoria and uh, how well people with disabilities were being supported. That, I think, to everyone's surprise, not sorry, not everyone's surprise, to, to uh, the surprise of the parliament and many regulators, that inquiry showed uh, horrific examples of abuse and neglect of people with disabilities over many, many years. Uh, criminal neglect and uh, abuse. There were all sorts of case studies put forward and some very brave people with disabilities came forward and told their stories and and advocates came forward and told stories and parents and families. Uh, and it's it's easy to forget that there's a whole lot of people with disabilities in our community who, you know, if... if um, Maybe they're not fed properly or bathed, assisted to bathe appropriately. Uh, they can die or get extremely sick. So there was examples of that, but there was also examples of um, physical abuse and violence and rape. And when we hear about these things happening, we realise that these are some incredibly vulnerable people, and I, I, I go back to that that uh, we're talking about the rights and the basic rights of just being safe and secure in in your home for people with disabilities and that wasn't being upheld for 
a lot of people and to have someone coming into your home who you rely on to just go through your daily ordinary tasks and then that person abuses you and so you are completely unable to tell anybody because you're scared, then that's that's a system breakdown and it's a it's an outrageous criminal act that's um, beyond beyond that act itself. It's beyond well, it's, um, the rape. It's very heinous, isn't it? It's sort of, um, you know, I say the, the measure of a good democracy is how we treat our most vulnerable. Yeah. And I think when you look at some of the things like the, you know, the ageing inquiry, the disability inquiry, the, I mean, it's just, it's, it's uh, terrifying stuff. That's right. And so these stories came out and the, um, there was a, a report from that inquiry and the government realised that they need to do more to to regulate this system. All the while, the NDIS is coming in, and the NDIS has uh, there, there is a regulatory body that oversees that. It mainly regulates disability services, but it can look at workers. But this, the Victorian government came to the decision uh, after after that inquiry, and also a lot of advocate uh, advocacy by. Um, some amazing, passionate advocates in Victoria. Uh, the Victorian government came to the realisation that they need to set up um, a commission here that really oversaw uh, quality and safety of disability support work and so overseeing uh, disability support workers. And so out of that we have a an act and a commission that I'm currently... Uh, building that will provide for registration of disability workers and the ability to uh, oversee them against a code of oversee disability workers against a code of conduct. And if disability workers uh, breach the code of conduct, uh, I, as the commissioner, can um, exclude them from ever working in the in the disability sector. So, and and there's some other powers, but they're some of the key ones. But people, the, the commission will be able to take complaints from people with disabilities or their families or others about um, what workers do. And I feel like a whole range of my different areas of work and my my volunteer work and my passions have come together to enable me to deliver for some of the most marginal, vulnerable people in our society. It's hugely promising and um, very exciting. I, I really appreciate that um, that rationale and sort of explanation you gave. Um, I wonder when one starts a new commission and becomes commissioner, what are the first three things you do? You ask how much your budget is. You try and figure out what this new act of parliament looks like in terms of uh, uh, in an operational and application sense. And then you, I think, go to the relevant minister and probably explain that uh, there's a problem with the act and it's quite challenging how the act is constructed and um, there's a problem with how much money you've allocated to it. There you go. That's quite honest. That's great. That's that's uh, very direct and helpful. How is the NDIS going in your view? The NDIS has 
become really challenging. Uh, it held, held great promise for all of us, and I'm a great optimist. I, I, I truly hope that it will, it will bring to life a whole lot of promises. But the and, and for some, for, for many people, it's working. But for a lot of people, it's it's become really, really challenging. And I think that's because the idea of individualised funding was always about putting the power in the hands of people with disabilities. Now, of course, that's not something we've had, and for many of us, ever. So to be able to direct our own services is 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 a whole new skill set and on one hand why why should people with disabilities have to develop that skill mm. anyway <laughs> there, there's enough involved in just navigating life generally yeah. but the idea was to be able to really uh, be in control of your own services and spend the money on the services you need directed by yourself rather than some large service provider who would tell you when a worker is going to come to assist you to, you know, maybe go to the shops or 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 get out of bed or, or, or eat or whatever. So uh, to empower people with disabilities. The, the massive challenge that I'm seeing is that um, – I think many of people, many of the people with disabilities who needed the most resources and the most support sooner have been put off. We're, we're only hearing about many people who need a lot of resources and a lot of assistance uh, really only receiving an NDIS package relatively recently given that the NDIS has been rolled out for a number of years now. And so I think I actually think the NDIS would have been well advised to have gone to the um, the people who need the most services soonest because that's really who the NDIS was created for, mm. for people with the highest needs. And at the end of the day, the, the thing that, I guess the promised land is really about all people with disabilities being able to participate in society and in community. We, many years ago, and like 30 years ago, we transitioned out of uh, institutions where many, you know, thousands of people with disabilities were held in institutions, big big buildings where they were all um, treated as medical problems and served in a in a in a completely um, institutionalized way, and we we did that deinstitutionalization thing, and we 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 went to the next transitional model, and it was always going to be a transition where people with disabilities would be in what we called group homes or group houses, and they really became mini institutions. And what the big promise was, and we stopped doing this, was actually then taking the next steps of people with disabilities being uh, able to, you know, choose where they live and be part of community in whatever way they could and would be 
which required more support, but also required um, ad- attitudinal change from the whole society. Mm. And we haven't got there yet. We we stopped. We yeah. stalled, and we hoped that the NDIS system would allow that. Now it's got a lot of things that will possibly allow that, but trying to get an NDIS package now is really often a, a bureaucratic challenge in the sense that it's my observation that if if you're articulate and what I would call bureaucratically competent, then you can you can do quite well in in getting a good package or if you if you're not happy with your package, appealing to get the right package. Not always, but you're you're more likely to to get what you need. Um, so that that's that's been a challenge, and I think that's creating a, a greater gap between uh, people with disabilities who are maybe um, fortunate to to be articulate and well educated, and those who maybe aren't as as literate or as or, or have families who are as capable to advocate on their behalf. So that, that's creating. I think a greater divide for some of the, again, some of the most vulnerable and disadvantaged people with disabilities. Yeah. And I mean, to to me, this sort of sounds like a a pattern that emerges when government decides to transition from a kind of central model to a market model without Mm. much of the work done around what that transition entails and particularly who's going to be most impacted by the the, the sort of the pointy end of that transition. I think that's right. And I think the... The market model is is a great idea, but there's no perfect market. And, you know, markets rely on everyone having good information about everything, everyone being able to completely choose and, you know, low transaction costs. Oh, my God, I'm turning, turning back into economist <laughs> here. And that all doesn't really exist. So we've, we've needed to set up other supports and systems around the NDIS to try and make sure that people have full choice. But, of course, there are, in many cases, what we call thin markets where there aren't enough services or aren't enough workers to properly meet the demand. And so the so that's a situation where the choice actually isn't that beneficial. You know, having a wide, you don't really, choice does not benefit you. Maybe no, the central right. system would have been and, better. And when you think about um, the the situation for a lot of um, workers, people, people working in the disability sector, there, there's instability for them. So to work in the disability sector is less attractive for many people because previously they might have had a regular job with a particular large service provider and now that employment is less um, stable for for them and so the disability workforce is um, at risk a bit because people don't feel like they they have the um, you know employment certainty that they once did yeah yeah it's, it's extremely well said. I was just thinking a bit about how you might have found the transition um, from your former CEO role um, into a, into a commissioner role. Uh, I haven't spoken to many people who have sort of made that transition, so I'm curious what that must be like for you and what you were thinking initially and how it's played out so far. I think the big thing that I've realised is that um, when I was in the um, community legal sector 
and and in the NGO sector generally, I had a, a lot of, um, I guess, a lot of freedom and to really do things differently and respond to need very quickly. So when when you when you're working in an NGO, you can partner with other organisations and you can um, change what you do to to really target an issue or a situation and also openly advocate government advocate against government or lobby government for something or or, or openly uh, speak to the media or or whatever and so now you know I'm, I'm a bit more constrained I, I'm head, heading up a independent commission it, it's it's independent from government but still you're you have a whole lot of uh, rules and, and norms and cultures that uh, still need to be, you know, abided by, and everything from the process of employing people to spending money to um, seeking to influence uh, government in different ways is is quite different, and it's a. There's, there's, there's a whole new sort of skill set I'm learning, I guess. So perhaps and, that's a sort of governed interactions rather than before where it was sort of you could just do what you knew and felt was best at the time? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think before it was about, okay, what strategy here is going to have the, the greatest impact in, in uh, the advocacy I need to do? And now that, that's ultimately the decision maker, but there's – there's also a whole lot of uh, care needs to be taken because, you know, I'm I, I'm a, a regulator whose job is to oversee a sector. I'm not necessarily an advocate anymore. Yes, and so the the tools of influence are quite different and. I probably won't fully appreciate that for another year or so. Does that feel weird not being an advocate now? Or like being less of an advocate role in a way. It it does, but you know, the I think the way laws are, are made and and implemented, you know, that there's no single body that does the law making thing. In a way, I don't pretend that I make law or regulation or anything, but being the person that oversees and implements the law, that that's part of the whole lawmaking process in a way. And so I, I feel that I'm I'm having this role as someone who gets to uh, deliver on a quite a a massive and complex act of parliament that uh, has, has never been done before. So in some ways I, I'm I'm the final piece of um, implementing a really important piece of legislation. So I, I'm, I'm getting to influence the law in, in a real way. I'm asking you this out of uh, 
ignorance and a desire to learn more, but um, we have not had a lot of people who have um, disabilities on the podcast. Um, I'm not, uh, I don't have many people in my circle who uh, have a disability that I've talked to them about. So I'm just curious, I mean, for our audience as well, what are the biggest challenges at the moment um, would you say people with a disability have? And you can draw from your own experience or your knowledge of the sector or friends. I think that we still live in many ways as people with disabilities in a a charity, if not a, a medical model. And what I mean by that, that the medical model is where people with disabilities are viewed as having a problem or a deficit that could be or should be fixed somehow by a medical process. Uh, and... And certainly that, that's, a, that's a fight we often have to have, particularly when you're interacting with the health system. And partly people with disabilities are often seen as a, um, I guess, a focus of, of charity or pity where people might feel sorry for you or pity you because you have a disability. And we're gradually moving to a point where it's recognised that disability is, in many ways, in many ways, caused what's by what's going on around us. Um, the, the there's a whole lot of things that um, the, the society does to create disability. So, uh, with, with my disability, if, so, if someone gives me a something in writing on paper, then that disables me. But if you maybe email it to me and I can have my computer read it out to me, then I, I get to read it just as easy, easily as anyone else. Um, if you build a public building with a set of stairs at the front of it and no other entrance, then you've disabled people with, dis- with physical disabilities. Now, there are a couple of simple examples. There, there are many, many others. But we need to kind of think of ways of making sure that the whole of society is accessible, as well as thinking of ways of overcoming some of those attitudes. And that's largely going to be done by simply greater exposure for everyone to disability. Like there are people with disabilities all around us. And I often think with... uh, children and young people with disabilities in school, probably the greatest beneficiaries of that kind of integration of making sure we have kids with disabilities in schools, the greatest beneficiaries are the kids without disabilities. It's hard for the kids with disabilities. The kids without disabilities actually get to learn that this is normal. It becomes normalised and that's that's what society will be when I leave school and they, they don't even think about it. But in our workplaces, in our sporting clubs, in our social lives, with not seeing many people with disabilities, it's it's unusual and it's uncomfortable. Yes. And so the idea of kind of having a casual interaction feels a bit funny and you worry about am I going to condescend someone or am I going to say the wrong thing instead of it just being a normal part of life. Yeah, and I think that's possibly the hardest part of um, just trying to 
trying to do things uh, the right way and, you know, like I think the inclination I have personally is to ask about things and I'm curious, you know, I want to know, um, you know, I I noticed that you're, you know, walking with a cane, Um, you know, is, is that something you've had for a long time? You know, can you tell me more about that? But then I also wonder, am I being inappropriate by asking those questions or is that appreciated? And maybe that differs on a person to person basis sort of how much to ask and how much to, you know, actively inquire. Yeah. I I think for me, there's a couple of questions that can always be asked first. And the main question that I always say, if, if you're uncertain about how to assist someone, you give the person disability all the power and you say, can you tell me whatever it is you need me to do with do for you, and I'll, 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 I'm happy to I'm happy to help. So put put them in the driver's seat, and they know you know they're the experts. They they know what they need. Uh, so respect their expertise and go with it. The next thing is, you know, get to know the person, and then maybe, and, and then maybe it's fine to sort of ask about, you know, tell it you know tell us about. You know, how long have you had your disability, or how did how did that come on, or or whatever? But you know, you you've got to know it. You know, getting to know that someone on a human level first is, I think, ah, oh, you know, a bit respectful yeah, and a bit yeah. normal. And you know? it's it's sort of the general rule, I think, is hmm. get to know for everyone, get to know someone on a human level, build trust, and then maybe ask about something you're unsure about after. You've sort of done those steps. I think that's right. But I think what you said is really pertinent before about kind of not having enough early stage exposure to people who, who um, you know, um, are facing different challenges um, at sports clubs, at schools, um, at, at work. And, you know, um, you, you, you just need to see that um, we don't do enough work at designing environments the right way or programs a lot of the time or buildings the right way that um, we, we create the world um, to mimic what we see as the users of that world yeah. and we don't kind of pay enough attention to what's there or maybe um, pay enough attention then we're not designing the right way. We're not, we're not doing it the right way for everyone. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, I think as a lawyer I see the only way we've managed to improve that is for people to take <clears> – <throat> excuse me, for people to take <coughs> – Oh, excuse me. Are you right? As a lawyer, the only way I've seen to really improve that is for um, people to take legal action. So I remember one of the great ordinary court cases under the Disability Discrimination Act many, many years ago, and people thought it was complete. Well, some people thought it was indulgent, where it was early days of selling tickets online and the Sydney Olympics were coming up. And uh, a, a blind guy in Sydney wanted to go to the Olympics and the online ticket sales program was inaccessible. And he, he took SOGOG to court, SOCOG to court and, and won. And that's, that was really important because mm-hmm. then we, we see since then, in the last 20 years, a proliferation of that's the only way you can get tickets to events. Yep. In many cases, and so uh, 
that was that was small but important. And uh, I think people think that's indulgent. But on the other hand, people will say, "Oh, you know, the internet's so so good for." people with vision impairment because you can get access to all these things in electronic format. But, of course, so much of the internet is often so accessible for people who use the sort of screen reader technology that I and others use that, in fact, we, we need to make these complaints and, and take these bodies um, to, to task over it. It's, it's, it's really important. I, I, I wish it didn't have to be done. And that's that's sort of yeah. It's a shame that that's the way that leads to change. But it sounds like at least um, you know there are there are some things happening in there, and that the wider industry pays attention to, for the fact that it shouldn't have to be a court case before there's equitable sort of access to services and whatnot. Yeah. Unfortunately, what it means is we got individuals taking big cases against large corporations yeah. like the banks, the airlines, the whoever to force them to make their their systems or their services available to everybody. Mm. <clears throat> no, you're right. Absolutely fine. I wanted to just pivot slightly and ask you a bit about your own kind of um, habits and behaviours in terms of how do you unwind? You've obviously got a, a pretty um, challenging new role, um, but how, how have you historically unwound and sort of tuned out from work and sort of revitalised yourself? Ah, mm. uh, a few ways, I guess. I, I I love live music, and I love many forms of live music. I I went to Golden Plains on the weekend and had an absolute ball, just either either sort of dancing in the crowd or sitting back and listening and drinking it all in. And just just enjoying the whole event, um, and and going to gigs and all that kind of thing. Um, I like to keep fit. Uh, I like. Um, what's, what's your poison of choice exercise wise? Oh, I'm just I'm just a sad old sort of <laughs> gym goer. I like to get on the treadmill and go for a good run. Oh, that's, me prob- too. that's probably my preferred thing. Get yep. on the treadmill and go for a good run, um, and then you know the rest of it's kind of just go and lift up some heavy things and put it down again, really. <laughs> um, but in, in, in many ways, like, I find that I find the gym incredibly boring, mm. but I like the way I feel afterwards. It's so, boring, but it's an essential brain shift sometimes. Yeah, that's right. And so you can – and it allows you to kind of just switch off a bit and know that you're not going to get interrupted. I used to do swimming laps for the same reason. You know, mm. you can swim up and down, no one's going to interrupt you, and your brain can kind of just – work through things and, and you know, divest itself of some things along the way kind of thing. So um, keeping fit, I, I'm, I'm fortunate to have, you know, a, a good range of friends. I've got a um, an amazing, supportive, loving partner who I um, just can't, you know, love, love spending time with, can't get enough of. So I'm pretty lucky on that front too. And... Um, being back in Melbourne for the last five years, I get to be near my my family and my my nieces, and um, that's 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 really important too. So, you know, lots of things going on in life. Absolutely, and and do you have a preferred way of um, uh, learning? Are you a uh, are you a, um, a a reader of the news? Are you a um, podcast listener? Um, 
And yeah, are you I'm, a book reader? I'm, I'm a bit of a, I guess, a, a news and current affairs and politics tragic. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm often kind of, you know, reading newspapers or listening to podcasts or, or, or listening to, you know, various radio things about sort of current affairs and news and politics. And so that, you know, that's and, – and, and to be honest, sometimes I'll combine that with the gym as a bit of a distraction to, to get through the, the boringness of the gym. Most people <laughs> are listening to, to music to keep them going and, you know, I'm listening to some, some politics podcast or something. So that's the uh, – that, that's that's the way I sort of keep up with with what's going on in the world. Yeah, awesome. So, look, um, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been just an amazing conversation. If, if people wanted to learn more about your work uh, and the work of the commission and sort of to connect with you also, how can they go about doing that? Sure. Well, you can go to uh, www.vdwc.vic.gov.au. So VDWC stands for Victorian Disability Worker Commission, and that's that's where we're at. Um, we're, we're getting the social media um, up at the moment, so there's there's going to be uh, Facebook and Twitter, and uh, they can also follow me on uh, on Twitter if they like to. Daniel G Stubbs one. Terrific, terrific. So uh, thanks so much for coming on again and for sharing your uh, wisdom. Thanks, Mark. Absolute pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 